Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you every week from somebody else's studio. Today, my guest, I believe that my guest is unmatched in the delivery of entrepreneurial content on a global level. Now, that might be a big statement for some of you to get your hands around. And it is a big statement, but I believe it. I believe that my guest, Patrick Bet David, has done more to help global entrepreneurs than anybody on the planet. And it is my pleasure to welcome him to the You Need More Money Show. I appreciate you, brother. Dude, Thank thanks you. for having yes, me. Yes, it's good to, be, good, to, good to have you here, right? It's an amazing place. Yes. It just you. oozes your company culture from the minute you walk in. Thank so you. thank you. I can just see it. I can feel it. You're like the uh, Optimus Prime when Come you walk on. in with 1,400-pound Optimus Prime at the front. It's like a kid <laughs> in a candy store, right? First time I saw it, I said, I got to buy this thing. <laughs> when can I have it? I'm telling you, that's exactly what it was. I was at Caesar's Palace <clears throat> eating at uh, Joe's, uh, is it Joe's Crab? Uh, 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 I think it's Joe's uh, restaurant. And I looked to my right. I said, Mario, what is that? He says, I think that's Optimus Prime. I said, I got to go say hello to it. I go to him. And the lady starts selling me on it. You know, it is made from real auto parts. I said, I want it. So they delivered it. By the way, we, we hired movers. The movers, call, we hired four movers. They're here. They called us. We were at the other headquarters. They called us and said, we can't move it. We need help. We brought four more guys to help move the whole no thing. No kidding. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. That's awesome. So, look, we, we have very similar planes in one area. I'm not an immigrant, but my grandparents were immigrants. They immigrated from Ireland. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side went to the fourth grade. I grew up in a very blue-collar, very sort of minimalistic environment. And today, I've, had a, I've grown a very successful business. And I've, I've now just sort of ventured into helping other people. And when I watch what you've done, it's just an unbelievable process. And I follow your process and I learn from what you've done. But we have to dig in because I think so many people see where you are today and they have no idea that where you started, and I'm not going to say zero because I don't believe anybody starts from zero, right? But I got to go back there. I need to know when you came from Iran, I just have to understand what that first year was. It must have been like a moonshot. You must have landed yeah. on the moon. So, so first of all, it, 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 that happened twice, right? Because when we left Iran and on Lufthansa flight, and when you cross the border, and when the, everybody says the magical moment is when, when the flight attendant says, you can order alcohol, right? And you hear the flight attendant says, you can officially order alcohol. And you hear the roar. <laughs> Everybody's so fired up. The adults, just everybody wants to order. Uh, and then we went to, into Germany. And when I got into Germany, got realize I've not, never seen white people. I've not, I've not seen Americans. So How old are you at this time? I'm 10 years old. Khomeini dies June 3rd, 89. This is July 15th, 89. So we go into Germany. Everybody's looking at us. And Germans, they're tall and big and handsome and, you know, strong. So I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And then they... Uh, take us into this refugee camp uh, right outside of uh, uh, Nuremberg in a city called Erlangen. And we're staying there with Yugoslavians at the time, Czechoslovakian, Czech Republic now, uh, uh, Albanian, Polish, all of them. They're, everybody's there. And we're all learning about each other's experience, Afghanistan, Pakistan. And so I had to learn German. I had to learn how to adapt to that. I had to learn how to do that part. And then a year and a half later, we get our green card and we come to the States. Then I had to learn this. Now, when we landed in, in New York uh, uh, Airport, first thing I did is I looked around and I said, where is, where is Rocky? I'm looking for Sylvester Stallone. Where is this guy? I'm trying to find all these Hollywood stars. You know, where are they? It was disappointing because I didn't see him in the you know, airport. They're like, well, you think these guys are going to be everywhere? But stay with me for a second. You're watching your father through this. Yes. And in your father's eyes, are you seeing Rocky, our hero, or are you seeing someone who's just trying to figure out how to make a better way for his family. I don't know how my dad held it together because my dad, uh, when the war was happening, he was always calm. I don't know how you do that. He was just calm and collected and my mom was a little bit rattled. Naturally, anybody's gonna be rattled when you're being bombed on and you hear the whistles. You know, you hear these whistles that are coming and it's a five second whistle 
and then it just shuts off for like three seconds, and then boom. Yeah. And you feel the shake, how much closer it's getting to you, and you feel the fact that the plane is getting further away from you, right? Because based on the shaking being stronger or less. And my dad was solid. I couldn't believe how solid he was. My dad had a temper. He had a very bad temper back mm. in the day. So it didn't match. It's almost as if the pressure got higher with war, he would go here. Great. Sign and of a great leader. Yeah, it, it, it was. And so, but that's when they got a divorce. When we went to Germany, my, my father applied, for, you know, sent the divorce paperwork to Germany in the refugee camp while he was in Chicago. And so I went through a phase of not having my father in my life. And when that, the divorce happened, I saw him uh, once every other week for about six years. Then I joined the Army, so I didn't see anybody for like three years except for a couple of vacations that I had. So, Pat, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that your parents got divorced. Oh, yeah, they got a divorce when I was... Uh, the last time my mom and dad lived in the same house together was 10 years old. The next time my mom and dad were in the same room together was a week before I got married because they wanted to go to my wedding. And I said, listen, guys, you're not seeing each other for the first time at my wedding. No way in the world. I brought them to my house. It was the most awkward moment because this wasn't one of those civil divorces where it's like my mother said they were communists. My dad said they were imperialists. They just can't stand the way each other you know, believes and thinks rich people are greedy, poor people are lazy on this side. It was so conflicted. It was confusing. So I brought him. I said, listen, if you guys don't sit down and have lunch together, you're not coming to my wedding. Mm -hmm. So I brought him to my house and they sat across from each other. And I said, I'm going to step out with Jen. You guys got to talk. I literally go down the steps for 30 seconds. You hear them screaming, we're good, we're good. (laughs) 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 We're totally good. We figured everything out. I said, okay. So when you go to the wedding and the family pictures are just so funny. But, you know, every family's family's messed up in some way. So Everybody's got it. But I got to go back. You're 10 years old. How did you get from New York to California? So we, no, New York was the first airport we flew into, yep. and then our connecting flight was to California. And then so we California lived. was the end result. Yes, yes. I lived in Granada Hills at one of our relatives' house for 30 days in, in Granada Hills. And then from Granada Hills, we got a place uh, in Glendale uh, on Dor- uh, uh, Doran uh, Avenue. And uh, that's where I lived six years, and then I joined the Army. At 16? No, no. Six years later, at 18, because two years was Germany. At 18, I joined the Army. What was your father doing to make money at that time? In U.S., yeah. he was working as a cashier at a 99-cent store. Hmm. We were so broke. I mean, listen, I'm, I never had, uh, uh, what do you call the, uh, the money parents give you every week? Allowance? I never had allowance. I didn't have allowance. So for me, my allowance was my mother would go to sleep at uh, 1030. At 11, I had a buddy of mine. His name was Adrian. We loved baseball cards. Man, we were fascinated by baseball and basketball cards. And at that time... Everybody wanted the Shaq rookie card, the Sergei Fedorov upper deck rookie card, or David Robinson 89 hoops. It was so cool for us. So at 11 o'clock, I'd call him. I'd say, you ready? Yes, let's go. So he would come. We would get the shopping cart, and we would go to every single trash. We had a route all the way to Albertsons. We would open up the uh, big uh, bins, and we would take the two-liter bottles, and we would take the cans, and we'd go recycle at Albertsons at 2 o'clock. We'd make 8 bucks a night, come back, split it, and then we'd go buy our cards. That's how we made our money. Your father's telling you what at the dinner table? Always be honest, never be afraid of the truth, work hard. Um, I can tell you that's like nonstop. He's probably said those words millions of times. Work hard. Never be afraid of the truth. Mm. That's probably his number one. Mm-hmm. And when my sister was getting married, and you know, in the Middle Eastern culture, the uh, uh, husband, the, 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 the groom needs to come and ask. And so they come and they're having a conversation and their parents are sitting there. His parents, and, and he's sitting there, and he starts preaching for one hour to their family about credit. I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? <laughs> he says, Siomak, life in America is all about credit. He's telling Siomak, you've got to have good credit. You've got to have good credit score. You've got to have good you know, driving record. You've got to have all this other stuff, because in America, it's all about credit. I'm like, Dad, he's probably told the credit story to strangers <laughs> all the time. I'm like, Dad, you don't need to tell people about their credit. He says, America is all credit. I don't understand why you went to the military. Did you want to serve or you needed to get away from I wanted something? to get away from everybody. I just was so sick and tired of everybody uh, telling me the life to live and who I was and what I was doing wrong and my mm. counselor saying I'm not going to amount to anything and my parents getting a divorce and I was waiting. The only reason I didn't join the Army sooner is because my mother still, uh, uh, I didn't want to leave my mom. I wanted my mom to go back to Iran on her own. So she knew I stayed with her till the day. She left. She left. So my, my mother said she has to go back to Iran. I said, no problem. You go back to Iran. I'll figure it out. She said, great. So she moves back to Iran. She gives me the 83 Toyota Corolla. 
<laughs> I sold my 83 Chevy long, long bed. It was an S10 long bed, just crazy stuff. So one night I partied till 4 o'clock in the morning in my sister's uh, uh, apartment off of White Oak and Burbank. She's and younger or older? She's six years older. Ah. Uh, off White Oak and Burbank Boulevard in Encino, California. And uh, we're partying, and she almost got evicted, and we drank a little too much. The next day, I wake up. I go to my Toyota Corolla to go to work, and they stole the car. <laughs> that was it. So I called my dad. I said, this is a perfect sign. I'm joining the Army. That day, I got fired from Burger King. Literally, I'm working at Burger King. That day, I got four W's from Glendale Community College, and I went to the Army from Glendale Community College. I went to the recruiting station. I said the following. I said, Jesus, this guy's been trying to recruit me for four years. I said, Jesus, if you can get me to an army base tomorrow, I'm signing up. He says, no one can get you in tomorrow. I said, I'm not waiting three months. So they got me in two weeks. In no, two weeks, I was in South Carolina, Fort Jackson. I was in the U.S. Army. Mm. And then I called my mom. My mom didn't know I joined the army. I called my mom from South Carolina saying, Mom, I'm in the army. I only got 30 seconds. Just wanted to tell you everything is okay. I'm in the U.S. Army. Your mother was staying only to get you through high school, and then her, her intention was always to go back? No, her intention was never to go back. Yeah. She ran out of money, and there was a lot of conflicts. Her parents passed. One passed, and the other one passed. Then she had to buy the house, sell the house that she had over there from her father. Then was issues, you know, all these things that she had to do herself back then. But she had no plans of going back. And so when the time came that she had to go back, she was forced to go back. I just said, I'm going to join the Army. Mm. So I wasn't going to live with my dad because my dad was too much of, you better do this, you got to do this. If you live with me, you know, I'm yeah. going to give you another heart attack because he's had so many heart attacks. I'm like, I can't live with you. You're going to have health issues. So I left. Yeah, so I can't stand the, the rules of my dad, so I'm going to go to the no military. No way. But I'm going to go to the military yes. where it's not going to be as... It's going to be, but it's somebody else <laughs> telling me what to do. It's not my family. So... I want to just fast forward just a little bit because um, when I prepare for for these interviews, I really go pretty deep on them. And one of the first things I do is typically go to somebody's YouTube page, and I don't watch page one. I go to the last page because that's where I really get the story. I love that. And when I did that for you, it took me back to 2002. 2002. 2002. YouTube? No, no, no. Oh. A story from you. Oh, got it. In 2002. Got where it. You and your father are selling t-shirts on the street corner. Now, that resonated with me because um, my first venture, well, not, I mean, look, mowing lawns, all that sort of stuff, if we want to count that, which those are legit businesses mm -hmm. for a 12-year-old kid, you mm -hmm. know? But my first real business was taking all of my summer savings and putting it into the t-shirt business. And I made so one shirt. As well. <laughs> I made one shirt. And I went to a cooking school. It was the only school I got into, was to go to be a chef. That was the only place I got into. And the shirt said, Johnson & Wales University, America's Vittles and Libations College. Vittles and Libations, food and drink. How to do. Come on. All my summer money went into, you I put it, it all zero. No way. Everybody's like, what the hell's a Vittles and Libations? Why don't you put food and drink? I'll buy a shirt that says food and drink. Vittles and Libations. I don't even know what those That's words mean. That's the number one of sales, right? you got to simplify to multiply. What does the marketplace yeah, care about? That's interesting. Right? I thought it was a creative <coughs> twist on it. It's ridiculous. The other thing I learned in that, going door to door in dorms, mm -hmm. college kids don't have 20 bucks. And if they do, then I put it in a stupid shirt. Yeah. No market test done whatsoever went all in. Complete, total failure. Boxes of shirts. Wow. And there's your dad. Have you kept any of it? None. And when you, when your father kept those shirts yeah, right. and gave them to you. That was again, a trip, let me tell you. That must have been something else because you probably didn't even remember I that fully that forgot happened. about you it. totally forgot yeah. about it. And yet it means something. So let's go back to that you're, it, because it's a very transitional period in your career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're leaving the fitness business mm -hmm. valleys and you're waiting for your licenses to, to uh, transfer, yep, correct? Yep. And you're busted. You're broke. Yep. And you and your dad start buying T-shirts for the markup. Yep. And you're going on the street corner and you're selling and you're looking for what was hot. Yes. Yes. And Osama bin Laden, 9-11 was hot. That's what it was. Yeah. And so I bought a shirt. My best-selling shirt was called Osama Yo Mama. That was my <laughs> number one selling shirt, I got to tell you. And so back then, I had to market myself in any possible way. So I had an expedition that I could barely make payments on. I was late on payments three months. And uh, uh, I went on a corner of, I'll give you the exact corner. It was on Roscoe. No, it was Nordoff because it's CSUN. It's Nordoff and Reseda. 
and all these CSUN kids would come out. And at that time, I was in incredible shape, literally too good of a shape, because my entire life was bodybuilding and partying and girls and all that other stuff. So I would take off my shirt. No. Now I'm telling you, I was I was using everything. You know the whole <laughs> shake what your mama All gave you. I'm shaking. You know, I take my shirt off, and I'd be holding these shirts, and I would sell one for fifteen, two for twenty every day. I would sell out. Every day I sold out, mm. and and because it was it was so timely at that time, and it was entertaining. Osama, your mama united we yeah. stand, and so believe it or not, united we stand. I sold the least amount. Yeah. Then I sold Osama Yoma. Everybody was buying that one. I mean, I couldn't even get enough of it. So I bought it for two. I'd sell it for 15 or two for 20. 75% of my sales were two for 20. So the average markup's probably going to be 12 bucks. 12 on two, that's 10. 10 times 400 shirts. I mean, that's a, that's a good amount of money you're making. So then I had a couple other guys. I gave them a couple other corners, and I'd give them a markup. So anything they sold above six was theirs, you know, and then we take that separation with that. And then you know, that helped me survive during the time when Morgan Stanley Dean Witter was giving up my license. Mm-hmm. So you go from financial services into the insurance side, or yes. it was all financial services? No, when I started with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, it was Series 7, 6, yeah. 66, 31, and 26, and life and health. So I could sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds, futures, commodities, life annuities. So you pick and choose which you want to sell. And when you go into Morgan... You'll hear, see guys, you know, his business called 401k specialist, yeah. okay, money under management specialist, mutual fund specialist, annuity specialist, insurance specialist. They always wanted to encourage you to choose something to specialize in. And um, all of a sudden, I was introduced to insurance, and I said, wait a minute, this makes a lot of sense. You have this benefit to do this, and you look around the world, everything is insured, cars, clothes, jewelry, home, life. I said, I'm getting into this business. So that's how I made my transition into specializing in one area, and I was insurance. You also liked the business model of the recurring revenue on that as well. Oh, I love that. That was yes. You were searching for that, yes? Yes. You knew enough about, listen, I don't want to just make the sale today. I want to make the sale over a period of time. A hundred percent, yes. So that brings me to where we are today because PHP does what? Sells life insurance and annuities, specifically. Specifically. I'm not trying to be mutual funds, stocks, bonds real estate, mortgage, and say I'm a holistic, you know, this whole concept about we're a, the new era is about being holistic and selling everything under the yeah. sun. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with that. Yep. So we share the same philosophy. My equipment financing business finances in four industries, that's it. Trucking, towing, construction, and moving, period. We like used equipment for bulletproof credit. That's it. So you have a niche. We have a narrow, deep yep. niche that I recognized very early, early on in my career. Because what I understood, Pat, was that everyone would say bad credit customers buy used equipment. And I would say, geez, that's not what the data tells me. The data tells me my best credit customers are buying used mm-hmm. equipment. And then I mm-hmm. would call them, learning from the T-shirt mm-hmm. experience, and say, tell me why you bought used. And their stance was, why would I buy new? My customers don't care what I pull up yep. in. They don't care that I tow their car in a 2018 for $750,000 or a 2010 for $150,000. Mm-hmm. So... Immediately, that said to me, that's where I need to live. And we went deep in four industries. So customer calls and says, I want to buy franchise vehicles for food trucking. No, not our space. Not your business. Not my business. Yeah. I, I need uh, furniture and fixture for this hotel that I'm, not my space. I need refrigerators for my restaurant that I'm, I can't help you with it. Four industries, used equipment, bulletproof credit. We turn away. To was it always like that? Was you, was it all? Was that all? No, in the always? beginning it was it was generalist. I had to be everything, just screaming for business. Got it. Right? Who can I? Who can I do business? Then you with? went specific, and then we went specific, yeah. and I Got never it. looked back. And it was one of the best decisions. Amazing. Me. So PHP now has this fantastic network of agents mm-hmm. globally or throughout the United States. We are not global yet, although we're looking at India, South America, and Canada currently right now. And the product offering that PHP sells is insurance mm-hmm. and annuities. That's it. That's it. Yep. So this is why it does become personal for me. Because as we talked a year and a half ago at lunch, I was telling you the story of my brother-in-law and how that you know uh, Penguin had just bought the rights to the book. Well, the book is out now, mm-hmm. right? comes out officially March 20th. And it's the story of my brother-in-law, John, who died at 46. He died, left a wife and four kids, my wife's brother. 
And by the way, they were thick as thieves, man. Like, uh, you know, I got a great marriage. We've been together 21 years. But I know she loved her brother more than she loved me. Oh, wow. No, You're I know. You, you couldn't have picked the worst person to take wow. from my wife's life, man. And he died at 46, left a wife and four kids with no health insurance, no life insurance, and 100 bucks in the bank. And, you know, in Dallas, when you got no life insurance or health insurance, no health insurance, you know where you go to get doctors or You go to Parkland Hospital. And you know who else goes to Parkland Hospital? All the inmates and the prisoners. And my wife rode those elevators every single day up there with guys in shackles and orange suits to go see her brother because he had no health insurance or life insurance. So we covered all the bills <clears throat> for that period of time. You know, he asked me, Pat, uh, when, I, when I met with him to talk about the money, and he told me all that stuff, right? I knew it wasn't, I knew he wasn't, it was chicken and feathers, right? The next job was always mm -hmm. the hit. Mm -hmm. you know? And he said, do me a favor, man. Don't, don't let my family go homeless. Right? He told you this. He said, he, said, he said, don't make me a promise. Don't let my family go was homeless. Was it a sudden death or was it cancer where you kind of knew it was coming? We saw him on Easter Sunday. So he moved from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas to Dallas a few years prior. And Easter Sunday was our favorite day. We'd go over to my mother-in-law's house who lives here now. And uh, all the family, we'd all get together. It was a wonderful event. Gigi, or my mother-in-law would cook, and it was, the kids would play football in the park, the whole bit. And that day I saw him, he looked terrible. And I said, man, it looks like you lost some weight. He goes, yeah, I lost about five pounds. And to myself, I'm like, man, you know, I need five pounds. He didn't eat a, a thing. <clears throat> we went to the couch. We started watching a game. He fell asleep like that. And he woke up just in a, in a just dead panic, grabbed my arm and said, I haven't felt like a shit for months, but I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. And he went to that doctor. They sent him right to the emergency room, stage four cancer. Wow. He thought he was going to get a shot, man. He thought he was going back to the dealership the next day. Timeline from there. One year to the day he died. To the day. Almost to the day. Real close. They gave him a big last dose of chemo again. I can't stress this enough, and I know you know it. You know, there ain't no zero down with cancer. You know, there's no financing options. So if you don't have health insurance, you're, you're at bay at Parkland. And they do the best they can, but they don't know their patients at Parkland. Yeah. I mean, come on, it's a machine. Mm -hmm. And they gave him a huge dose of chemo in this last-ditch effort to get it. He died of, of what's called germ cell cancer, Pat, which... Um, is very common in children, and 87% cure rate in children, because it starts in the gonads. But in adults, it moves up, and it takes over your lungs, and eventually takes over your heart, and it's almost incurable at that point. And that's what he got. They gave him a big dose, and they said that uh, if the dose, this big dose of chemo doesn't work, he's got, you know, maybe six months, so get his affairs in order. By the way, not a lot of affairs to get in order, you know? And, uh, and he died. He, he got pneumonia and died a week later. <clears throat> so, my point being, could Life you imagine? Interesting, man. Could you imagine if he had been, you know, in your business, yeah. what $200 a month could have done for oh, him? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, you know, we hear these stories uh, 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 almost every day, and it's unfortunate. Because first time when I got into the insurance business, for me, Matt, it was I'm broke, I have no money, uh, I'm just trying to figure out a way to make money. And it was purely from a standpoint of, I'm going to make money if I do this business. First one, when I had an experience like this, happened to a 19-year-old kid. Our first policy we paid, I was a 19-year-old kid that got into a car accident. He was the only child those parents had. <coughs> and when he passed away, um, and I got that phone call that this kid passed away, and the parents found that for seven years they didn't get pregnant. They weren't going to go and adopt a child. Yeah. Mom and dad were prayers, and so they came back and let's pray for one more month. Month later, she gets pregnant. Then they named the kid Gilbert, and then you saw at the funeral, a couple thousand people showed up to a forest lawn in L.A., uh, and then you realize, man, th th this is legit on what we do for families. Parents didn't have a life insurance policy. This kid had $100,000. Mom and dad got $50,000. That enough time to mourn and be able to figure the whole thing out. So uh, uh, I, I fully understand the pain of what happens with that. You know, unfortunately, unfortunately, the way we are wired as human beings is we never think it's going to happen to us. We always think it's going to happen to somebody else. We never think it's going to happen to us. We never think we're the ones that's going to have cancer one day. Not us, it's somebody else. We never think we're the ones that's going to have a 
you know, issue with one of our spouses one day. It's always going to be someone else. We never think someone's going to hit us in the car. We never think some one of our kids is going to have a health issue that needs health insurance that the cost is going to be hundred grand. We always think it's somebody else until it happens. Yeah. And at that point, it's typically too late because that's when you, you know, Harvard did a study said 65% of bankruptcies are due to health issues because all you're doing is financing this possibility of this person's going to live and then boom, you lose everything. You take money out of your 401k, you just lost 100 grand, 30 grand, 20 grand, 7 grand. And then the person passes away and you have nothing left to your name. So my wife was just telling me the other day, and I already knew this. I could tell, you know, how deep her grieving was. And uh, it's, we're coming up on two years to his death. And she told me just the other day she feels like she can see it again. You know, she can, she's coming out of that period of time. She's coming out of it. And it's amazing to see her get happy again, you know. But what I learned from that scenario, and I was a pusher and a hustler long before that, but I learned in that scenario, you, you anyone, will never tell me that money doesn't matter. Ever. It is totally false. And, and I saw both sides of it. I saw what not having it does, and I saw what having it does. And the ability to go in and fix that money situation yep. for that period of time yep. has been the greatest <coughs> checks I could ever have been fortunate enough to give. And money solves a lot of problems. Money solves a lot of problems. You know, you, you, uh, uh, one time a lady got up and she said... Uh, Rich people are greedy, and all they care about is money. And it was a debate type of a place, so people were debating me, and and you know all they care about is money. These well, you were on stage, so they're debating me. Uh -huh. So they're, they're posing questions, and and I'm giving answers. So, and I said, really, ma'am? Yes, of course. Rich people are greedy, and that, that. I said, ma'am, let me ask you a question. Uh, have you have any kids? Yes, I have. How many kids do you have? I have three kids. Okay. Would you take advice from me on whether you should have a natural birth, a C-section? Would you ever take advice from me whether you should have natural birth or C-section? No. Why not? Because you've never had a kid. And who are you to tell me how I should, <clears throat> how I should have my kid? <clears throat> I said, fair enough. I said, ma'am, have you ever been a millionaire before? No. I said, how do you know yeah. how rich people think? Yeah. You know, I can't tell you what to do with your C-section or your baby or have a natural birth. When my wife was wanting to have the babies... I'm like, what do you want to do? She says, I want to have them natural. I said, I would never do natural. You sure you want to do natural? She says, I want to do natural. So we hired a doula. You know what the doula said? Doula comes up and says, Pat, wait till the last one. I said, okay. So then she said, she still wants to have a natural. No problem. Week comes, doula. We have that meeting. Do you still want to have a natural? I still do. I've done my research. Great. We're at the hospital, Northbridge Medical. She goes and gives her uh, 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 how she wants it. She wants it to be natural. The lady laughs at her. Says, you're not going to have a natural. I want to have a natural. So there came a moment, you know, Northridge Medical Hospital was known for pushing C-section immediately. Okay. So anesthesia and C-section. My wife stuck to her guns. She never had a C-section. Mm. She never took Pitocin. I never took anesthesia on any one of the kids. Wow, you that's not how let I me, thought it was going to go. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Listen, <laughs> cut me anesthesia and Pitocin. <laughs> give it to me, right? You know, but, but this is what she went through, but mm. that's her choice, Right. <clears throat> so I think a lot of times when people say things about rich people, my recommendation to them is go become rich first and then see what it took to become rich, then have an opinion about rich people. Because it will be much different than you only being poor. And you, it's, it's the same thing, by the way, uh, Matt, the same goes with kids that grew up with only money that don't know what it is to be poor. So what do you know about being poor? You don't know what it is to be poor. So you have to go spend years of community service, public service to get that feeling of what it is like. You got to go to third world countries. You got to go to places in the community that need help to kind of experience and say, I finally get what this is all about. Pat, I struggle with that though. Here's why. Guys like me and you who started from the bottom and worked our way up, I see a lot of people that don't and still get really rich and have these wonderful lives. My point is, I don't know that you have to go from zero to something to be. Um, truly successful and really enjoy it. Well, I, I don't see. think you do. No, I don't think you do. What, what I am saying, though, is the Bush family, they have a, they have a, a tradition for many years that the great-grandfather had in place. He says, first, go make your money, set up your wife, yeah. set up your kids, yeah. set yourself up, then it yeah, is your duty that. 
to go and give back to public service. I love that. That's their system, right? Yep. And Kennedy's had a little bit of that. They have a little bit of that. You know, there's a little bit of a similarity between those two families. So what does that mean? I mean, look, go make your millions. So, you know, if my kids are one day going to be saying, well, Dad, we're from a very wealthy family. What do you want me to do? Buddy, I get it. But you got to go see the real world. You got to go you, get your piece. You, you got to go. You got to go see the real world. So you got to <laughs> go on a summer for three months with four of your buddies, and you got to go to Cuba. You got to go see what communism looks like. You you got to go to South America and kind of get a feel for it. You you got to go to Asia, Indonesia, and some of these places and cook. You got to go to Philippines to the Smoky Mountains. You got to go get a feel for it. You got to go to some of those places and then come back, and then your heart will have a you know, pull, it'll have a pull to say, I want to serve while I'm making my money. Now I get both sides. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that, and, and then there's a family that's so rich that they're too good, too cool for school. And, and, and you know, I don't think that's good either. I, I don't think a person like that can get elected to office nowadays because you've got to be able to connect with both. But how do you handle that, though? Because you're, you're a gritty, you know, scrappy guy, just like mm-hmm, I am. Mm-hmm. And there are times, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll speak for no, myself, absolutely, sure. where I have a chip on my shoulder in those environments, and you and I are beginning to see how that environment works now. And there are times where I am still looked at as this just gr- street smart, gruff, too rough to hang in the boardroom kind of guy. And it drives me crazy, but I, and, 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 they, and they're two-faced about it, they get you in, but then I know that sometimes they're thinking that. How do you deal with they're that? They're thinking what? That you're a money guy? And no, that they're, that they're thinking like, you know, this guy went to cooking school, man. He started in a Who dumpy. Who is he to be in here with me and you yeah, know, I mean, we're he's better a, than because I went to Ivy League school and all this stuff? My point exactly. Yeah, I'm, I, don't even, I don't even think about that part. Here's why. This is why I don't even think about that part. Um, so I'll give you a perfect example. I'll give you a perfect example, Okay. I was at Dennis Prager's house uh, uh, this last week. Dennis me. Prager, the radio? Uh, yes. The- I was with Dennis Prager this last week. With, uh, uh, I was with his wife and his kids and his family at his house and his three dogs. So we're spending time together and we're going back and forth. Smoking and cigars with him? He's smoking cigars. He's I'm cigar taking smoker. the second, second hand. Yeah, so <laughs> well, you don't smoke cigars anymore? I'll, I'll smoke cigars. And I'll smoke cigars every once in a while. But uh, mm-hmm. when I'm doing the interview, I kind of want to stay focused with it. So... So I'm, so I'm, I'm sitting there, and we're going back and forth. It got very heated, very, very heated, because, you know, we talk about politics and all this other stuff. But in my mind, you know what I was thinking about? Here's what I was thinking about. I had a radio show uh, a few years ago, and I was with, uh, uh, I had some things going on in L.A., and show I was talking about capitalism and all this other stuff. And Prager and I kept trying to set up a time to get together. It never happened, okay? And so the guy told me, he says, hey, Pat, you know, your, your stripes, you got to go earn your stripes and all this other stuff. And I said, you know, it's so interesting. That and another, ex- many, many experiences. I went into one room one day and, you know, one guy says, you know, look at that guy. Look how much attention he gets. Look when you walk in. You don't get any attention. I was 27 <laughs> years old. And he just flat out saying this to me. I said, you know what's crazy? Here's what's crazy. That really doesn't bother me. Here's why it doesn't bother me. Because I know that I trust one thing. I trust one thing. I dare you to improve faster than me. I dare you to outlast me, and I dare you to outwork me. And eventually, that's the philosophy I trust. I trust in me improving at a very fast pace by being open to areas that I need to be focused on improving. So eventually, when I sit in a boardroom, like my guys that come in, and we sit down in a boardroom, Sachin, $5 billion fund, and Bina with uh, 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 Greg Share, you know, he's done so many different deals. God knows how many <clears throat> deals he's done, Right. And then all these other guys, that, you know, Chris Hopkins, who deals with the Brenner International Group, and they own the Houston Dynamo. When you sit with these guys, and this guy went to this school, this guy went to Wharton Business School. In that moment, based on your performance, yeah. no, one, no one cares anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, once you go on the stripes uh, uh, and you don't make a big deal about it, you don't think about it anymore, they're not even thinking about that at this point. Look, I, I deal with it by saying to myself, um, <clears throat> I think it's the... Um, I, I know Roddy Dangerfield who said it there, or Woody Allen said it. Why would I ever want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member, right? And there's a piece of me that I like that. <laughs> uh, that's true comedy, man. That's true comedy, those guys. So let's, let's get to where we are today because something uh, life-changing has occurred for you. I'm watching it over the last couple years. I'm sort of doing my own version of it on a much smaller scale. 
But I'm, I'm watching you on video talk about your own personal struggles in business. Now, l- let me rephrase that. It's not, woe is me, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's just, I'm going to educate myself, and as I do it, I'm going to hit record and I'm going to teach yep. you. Yep. And that was originally for your PHP agents, yep. right? Yep. And then quickly it morphs into valuetainment mm-hmm. and becomes, in my opinion, per my intro, one of the greatest free educational courses ever created for the global entrepreneur. And you are that guy. Why? Why valuetainment? Why do value Why not so, just leave it PHP? Why not do it in your intranet within PHP so nobody sees it? Don't give away your trade secrets to anybody else in the industry. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And, and, and there's a lot of people that get upset on my content. The people that are monetizing content don't like me too much. So you'll see an audience that's not a fan of Patrick Bay David within the industry of creating content. Because the idea is, wait a minute, that's a $1,500 course. Why did you put it up? That's a $99 course. Why would you put it up? That's a $600 course. You'd sell 1,000 of these if you did Facebook advertisement. You'd make 700 grand on that course. You'd make 2 million on that course. You'd make 3 million on that course. So for me, here's, here's where it starts. Okay. When, when 2007, 2008, 2008 my, my, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we start dating. Matt, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm so hot-headed at that time. I'm like right here. Yeah. Like my fuse was so short. And here's what I mean by my fuse was so short. So I'm making money. Uh, I have uh, uh, heard the magical words from my father. I'm proud of you. Mm. My mother uh, said, I cannot believe what you're doing. She still didn't know what I was doing. My friends and family who went and got degrees, they're all sitting there saying, shit, Pat really pulled it off. And their parents would say, never hang out with Pat. Because <laughs> I was the only Armenian kid who had parents who had gone through a divorce at the time. And it's like... Divorced kids turn out really bad, so stay away. I joined the Army, which was like a, oh, he can't make it in college, so you go join the Army. It's like a second, third, fourth option type, to, you know, to the community I was a part of. So I, I earned that. I had the nice cars. I spoke in front of big audiences. I did this. I did that. The local community, people knew me at restaurants. Was PHP hitting? No, at not at all. This was way before PHP. <laughs> okay. And so 08, I'm going through this process, and, and I'm just furious. And I'm asking myself. I'm having all these conversations with myself. I'm like, listen. Was this it? You're supposed to go become rich, make a lot of money, and that's it. Is this why the man upstairs put you here? This is it? This is all it's about? The cars, the life, the you know, accolades, this is it? And I would say, no, it's not. I, I don't believe this is So I created a board myself at that time, people I respect, who are way ahead of me in life, typically 20 years ahead of me in life, mm-hmm. and they are very successful in every aspect of their lives. And I'd get them to get and I'd ask them questions. And I would say, I want to figure out what my next purpose in life is. And it can't just be monetary, because this is too easy. This is, you keep improving, you're going to make money. If you read the book, Principles by Ray Dalio, the guy's a $17 billion guy, Bridgewater House. He, he built his business based on principles of constantly improving. It's not like it's a, oh my <laughs> gosh, what is a fascinating, no, it's just constantly improving. He just did it for 40 years. So because of that, he builds what he builds, and he's got all these accolades. I hit that mark, and I said, what is it? So I sat down, and I finally met a guy named, uh, not a guy, a, a former advisor to President Reagan, George Will, and Pat Boone. Hmm. At Miramar Hotel. And Pat Boone? Pat Boone at Miramar Hotel. We had dinner together. How did you put that meeting together? I did not. A man named Bill Vogel did. He put that meeting together because he saw it in my eyes that there's fire. This is Mm. not a fabricated... Listen, I I watch a lot of motivations to see who's doing what and who's in the marketplace. I'm not the guy that says, oh, I've never heard of that guy, to kind of posture myself. Yesterday, I'm with Ariana Huffington at her office. Well, her and I are spending time together. First thing she says when she meets me... I watch all your videos. I follow your content. It's amazing what you do. I've been trying us, for us to get together. I'm so glad we were able to make it. And, I, you know, a part of me is like, here's a woman that sold her company for $350 million. It's not even posturing, saying, I know who you are. Yeah, right, right, like, right. Dude, she's yeah. like, yeah. 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 That's awesome. you know why. I, I love know who that. you are. I love that. Huffington Post, right? So, I love that. So that kind of gave me a lesson from her humility to say she wasn't trying to posture and say, I am, like, so superior. Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. I don't know who you are. So this goes back to that moment. And I'm with Pat Boone and I'm with George Will. And honestly, I have no idea who Pat Boone is. I don't know who George Will is. The guy is telling me, Bill is telling me who Pat Boone is. He says, Pat Boone, Elvis, Johnny, Cash, all Like, Pat Boone is Pat Boone. I'm like, dude, I'm, believe me, I'm cool. I just don't know who he is, okay? So he put a couple songs. I say, I know the songs, but I have no idea Pat Boone. I'm in Iran. We're not listening to a lot of Pat Boone. So... So then we go and we meet them, and I start telling them, you know, and you can tell, you know, because when you know there's fire in someone's eyes and someone's belly, you can't, fa- you can't fake that. That's the part about motivation I was talking about. 
You cannot fake that. There's one aspect that is money. It's very easy to see eyes of money. It's not hard to see eyes of money. It's very easy to see eyes of money. But eyes of purpose, it's intimidating. It's different. It's clear. There's mm -hmm. a different purpose behind it. There is no convincing. There's not a, let me convince you that I'm really driven by this purpose. No one's trying to convince Because anybody. there's no judgment connected to them because they're so comfortable with it. You can buy in or you don't have to. It doesn't matter to oh, them. Oh, it's not because I'm not competing. There is no competition yes. in a bigger purpose. Yep. There is zero competition in a bigger purpose. When there's money, there is competition. When there's a leader's bulletin, there is competition. Purpose doesn't have a leader's bulletin, right? So I'm sitting and we sit in this meeting, and I'm just telling him, Bill says, so, you know, Patrick, but David, he's here. Here's where he's at. Here's his life. He's trying to figure this thing out. What feedback could you give him? And they said, well, listen. Uh, why did you come here from Iran? And I said, uh, literally, I'm thinking, I'm like, I, I, I don't know. My parents didn't want me to grow up in Iran because they didn't want me to go in the military there. Because at 12 years old, I had to go in the military in Iran, and you had to kind of stay because you can't leave. So that's why. I says, why else did you leave Iran? He says, uh, maybe opportunity was better in America, not here, and blah, 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 blah. Then he says, uh, he says, why don't you go study why America has 40 million immigrants here? George Will says this? Yes. He says, why don't you go study why America attracts so many immigrants? Why do If all these other people say all these other countries are so great, why don't millions of people go to their countries? If socialism is so great, why do people not go to Europe? Why don't they go to South America? Why, are, why is everybody coming here? And I said, okay, interesting. Then he started talking about lawyers, what lawyers are doing to the marketplace, parks, less parks in America than ever before because so many kids are falling off their breaking arms and the first thing you see is a lawyer comes and they sue the city and they get 300 grand for the kid so cities are all running out of money and they're filing bankruptcy for all these lawsuits so cities are saying get rid of the parks the kids are becoming fat obesity is higher because they're no longer playing outside and look at the statistics of parks we've lost 40 percent of parks i'm like dude what is this guy talking about i'm just i'm like let me go do research and that's when i got fully obsessed with studying the differences between capitalism socialism yeah. and communism and i said let's find out where this is at and that led me into an absolute obsession with capitalism. It led me to an absolute obsession with entrepreneurship. It led me to an absolute obsession of realizing, here's a cat, 1.8 GPA in high school. <laughs> I was never <clears throat> destined to do anything with my life. I never, Matt, I've never, listen, when I'm telling you never, I have never played organized sports. I am 6'4". Never been on I've a team. I've never, listen, when I tell you never, I've never played organized sports. I've never been on a basketball team. I've never been in a league. I've never played high school ball, baseball. I loved baseball. Baseball was my favorite sport. I died. You tell me stats about the 90s, I'll tell you stats. You'll say, how does this guy know John Cangelosi? How do you remember all these guys? I would go watch Kevin Bass, Caminiti, you know, A-Rod, Buhner. All, I was fascinated by stats. Stats to me was so amazing. I've never played organized sports, ever. Not gymnastic, not football, not baseball, not basketball, nothing, ever. And so you look at this thing, and, you know, I go from that <clears throat> to becoming who I become now, and I see all this poverty in America and in the world. I said, listen, there are a lot of other people like me out there, and the one that gave me the freedom to be able to do this is capitalism and entrepreneurship. I want to spread that with the world. And so Valetemi came about, and we started talking about it, and then all of a sudden, you know, one video, Life of an Entrepreneur, gets 31 million views, and then all these how-tos. I had one talk that's called the DNA of an entrepreneur uh, that's about 23 minutes on YouTube yeah, and they Facebook. they went viral. That went, so that's when it brought all the attention. I said, this is what I'll be talking about for many years to come. Because you believe that valuetainment is an extension of your purpose. 100%. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that painting right there, that painting, I, I, I uh, wrote a fiction book based on true stories and based on events that I experienced in my life. I wrote it and I finished. It took me five years to write it. It's 96,000 words that I mm. will not publish. Mm until I am no longer doing PHP, which is going to be for a while. It's a controversial book. You'll see a side of me that I really don't want people to see yet. So, Pat, the reason that the book isn't coming out is because to protect PHP? At this point, it is. Yes, at this point, it is because some of the stuff in there is, you know, a little bit too much, you know, that it's just, it doesn't need to come out yet. But the other part is my, my parents don't want me to come out with the book, and, you know, they're mm. not... Uh, a little bit of a controversy with the book on my views and what I think is going to happen and how to think and all this other stuff. But, you know, Valuetainment is going to end up becoming an academy. Valuetainment is going to be, end up becoming an academy, a, a global academy that's going to develop some of the most ridiculous yeah. leaders and entrepreneurs around the world. And so 
you know, that part of developing leaders and developing minds and developing hearts really drives me. So you're ha- you have very crystal clarity between running PHP and uh, being this driver of purpose behind Valuetainment. Oh, yeah. And so for me, and I think for so many other people, it's still this transformational thing. When we were at lunch, you said something to me, which was, what are you doing it for? Why are you writing the book? Why are you dipping your toe in these videos and things like that? And at that time, I didn't have a great answer for you. And today, maybe I don't have the perfect answer, but I do have a very uh, crystal clear vision of it because I have a talent for it. And that talent is something that must be fueled. The problem with that statement is it could, to some people, come across as egotistical or it could come across as braggadocious. But to me, it comes across as crystal clarity of who the hell I am. So now the question becomes with the talent is the following. There was a book written by a British diplomat called Leaderless Revolution. Leaderless Revolution. It's an okay book. It's not a crazy book. Uh, but there is eight pages of the book that is revolutionary about the book. And he talks about there's three things that drives people to create a revolution. What bothers you, what you hate, and what you love. And a person has to turn off the noise that we have in the world. How many Twitter followers? How many Facebook yeah. followers? How many YouTube followers? How many comments? How many likes? How many Instagram? We are so caught up with this. And by the way, even the person that says, I don't care about that stuff, that's the guy that typically cares the most about that stuff. Because that, I know you're a data-driven guy. Oh, I mean, you see everything around me. Everything is, is dashboards and data. I am all dashboards. I'm all, I'm all data guy. So I'm not telling you it's not important. I'm not sitting here trying to paint myself as this, you know, a noble, oh my gosh, <laughs> just please, I don't need... Just I'm do not, it. No, just I'm do not, it because... there's a selfish side of it. There's a selfish of course. side of it that, you know, we, we have blood, we have emotion, we have all of that. But the other side of it, the other side of it is I want to get myself to a point where I am so disconnected from the, out, like, from, as an outsider, I can look at myself and give myself counsel from the outside, and I'm not offended, and I'm not doing it just to seek attention. It is for the bigger purpose, meaning, if we all need attention in life, I mean, what is attention? We need to have sex. If I have a wife, if we don't have sex, guess what? You're screwed. You yeah. need attention. I need to pay attention to my kid this morning, I came back with two letters from their teachers. Long. Both my sons did some stuff yesterday. I have to have a conversation with them and pay attention to them. This morning, early, my daughter was looking at me, and she gave me the look like, hey, uh, why haven't you been here for the last few mm-hmm. days? Like it, only a daughter can give. 21 months, and she, she, knows, she knows how to do this, and she doesn't want to come to me. She was so upset. And then when I'm leaving, I'm like, can I spend time with you? And she's like, yes, come on. And so we sung out. And I'm kissing her, and she's like all over me, and I'm just in love. I'm like, you know, yeah. like that is attention, right? So we need attention. There's a part of us that needs attention. But I don't want it to be 80%. I don't want it to be 70%, 60%, 50%. I want that attention to be 5 10% that is not consuming everything else I'm doing in my life. And when you get it to 5 or 10%, then it allows you to really uh, think the bigger pr- picture of your purpose. And that only happens if you turn off the noise, write down what bothers you. What do you hate? What do you love? And go deeper. Why? Why? What caused it? What else? Why? How many other people are going through this? What would it do if you spent time talking about this? What would happen if you really drove this part? Well, what will this cause in the world? You know, h- how would you do it? What are some steps? Do you have a system to improve this? What did you do to work on this area? And then, ta 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 Then, boom! There's that moment. And when that moment hits, it's like clarity, mm. purpose. Mm. I don't need to brag. I don't need to try to impress. I am so crystal clear on what I want to do in my life. Here's a target. Let's go get it. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. And your eyes change, Matt. Your eyes change. I can't tell you how big of a difference is when your eyes change. Well, you're saying because the eyes are the, are the view to the soul? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, your, your eyes change. So w- w- when you become clear on what you want to do, you're not looking at everything the same way anymore. It's crystal because you know you know you know you play poker. What do poker professional poker players wear? What glasses? Why so we do they can't wear glasses? See. We so can't they see what they're going to do. So even right. professional poker players. No, no, no. Know. I mean because they right because they're going to see yeah, what your move is. That's, that's, that's my point. point. And even a pro's wearing glasses. Yeah, right. Why is a pro wearing glasses? Yeah. The pro knows you can read my eyes. Yeah. So eyes, you will know when you face against. That's somebody, powerful. Buddy. You're going to know I that. Freaking love and, that. And you know who's going to tell you that? Everybody's going to tell you. I that. love that. And you know what they're going to tell you? Here's what they're going to tell you. It's not a compliment, by the way. 
Here's the first thing you'll typically hear people say, hey, are you pissed off? Is everything okay? No, I'm not. I'm, dude, why is everybody telling me I'm pissed off? I am not pissed off. Why do you keep telling me I'm pissed off? I'm not pissed off. I'm crystal. I've I, never heard it presented that way. Yeah. That so, the eyes change. You just watch I them. Watch it, people man. you talk to in your interview. You'll know which eyes are money, which eyes fame, which eyes purpose. Dude, you see it, though. You, you see, see it. A hundred percent. Totally. You'll see it. And you don't see it in the suits and the watches or any of that sort of stuff. No. You see it in their eyes. hundred percent. I love it, man. Yeah. Listen, I could go forever. We got a hard stop, unfortunately. We got to close down. We got to shut yes. it down. And for that, I, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Um, you know, the word grateful is an extremely powerful word as well. So many people still use thanks and appreciation, and maybe there's a place for that. But my life, I like to say I'm grateful. And I also like to do things that only make me grateful for doing them. Do you follow what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't like to do stuff that I say thanks on a, you know, nonchalantly. I want to do things in my life that creates situations where I become grateful for that. And today is one of them. So thanks, my friend. Anytime, brother. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Let me give you this. Yes. This is for you. Oh. We had lunch. We talked about it. It happened. Penguin came oh, through on I their word. Oh, I love it. And there it is. There's a little something else in here for you as well. But I thought you'd get a kick out of that. It is not available. That is pre-release. No way. There's only about 10 people on the planet I that have it. that. I love it. Congratulations, man. Yeah, thank you. You need more money. <laughs> Matt Monero. It's a powerful cool book, cover, my man. friend. Yes, you like that cover? I love it. It's a great cover. Do you remember at lunch we talked about it? And the book was originally titled, I Need More Money. And the publisher was pushing me for You Need More Money. And I was pushing back. They made the right choice. You need more money. You need more money is better. Because it's talking to me when I'm looking at it on the bookshelf. You need more money. You. Yes. So that makes me want to buy it. I yeah, like it. Yeah, and two things are going to come out. Who is this guy to tell me I need more money? Yeah. Or, or, hey, does this guy really I love the title. So, Congratulations on that. Thanks, Pat. Truly. It's yes. a pleasure to have you on the Brother, show. thank you for having me. You got by. Yes. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money. <laughs>